The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. This is Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox today on Real Life Real Estate. Welcome to our show. Uh, Vena is, uh, I believe, uh, in California, where it may be even warmer than the 95 degrees we're having here. Uh, or maybe not. Uh, she's doing a, a workshop out there. And uh, I'm uh, filling in today. And joining me today is a gentleman named Timothy Mor- Norris. Tim Norris used to live in Cincinnati, and now he's living out in the great Midwest a little further uh, with the National Real Estate Insurance Company, Tim is probably the most expert person I know on re- on real estate related insurance uh, for investors, for rental property owners, for anybody involved with real estate. Uh, Tim, are you there? I am here, Jim. Good to be here. Good, good to have you, Tim. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we started doing business and knowing each other probably ten years ago already. So at least. It's, at been least. A, it's been a while since I moved here and started in this business. Uh, we talked about some things beforehand, Tim, and I guess I'm going to start with, uh, as I look at insurance, you know, there's two or three things we insure in our business. We insure vacant houses that are houses being renovated, houses between tenants, and then the houses that are occupied with tenants. And then we insure our businesses, which is... I think a little different issue, whether we talk about umbrella policies or business insurance, uh, it insures our, our our automobiles or things we're doing when we're working on our properties. So I'm hoping today we can cover some of these different topics and give our, our listeners uh, information about the difference between rental house insurance, vacant house insurance, your personal property, the house you live in. Uh, and your personal auto versus your business. Uh, those sound like some topics we can go over. Yeah, it's a, a, we, um, I don't know if we're going to be able to get all of that in an hour, but we're going to do our best. <laughs> all right, we'll right, see what we can do. Well, let's start with some basics. What's the difference between a vacant house insurance policy or a house we're working on when we buy a vacant property that's not yet livable uh, and a rented house policy that a renter is living in or when a renter's not in it and when we're between tenants. It's vacant, but it's not under construction. Yeah, that's very contingent and very relative to the actual company that's providing the insurance. So a lot of what I'll give you is somewhat generic, but um, it's always good advice to check your own policy, to check your own coverage and, and deal with your specific advisor. Because what I'm about to give you again is probably more general in nature. Um, if you think about insurance relative to our real estate investing businesses out there, um, no matter where you are in the country, you're really thinking about two different things. And not to oversimplify your opening statement, but 
one of them is benefit. And what I mean by benefit is relative to the property itself, whether it burns in a fire or blows away in a tornado or is damaged by hail, you're paying a premium for a benefit relative to fixing that damage. Subject, of course, to many parameters, deductibles, co-insurance clauses, all those things that are very specific to your individual coverages. But nonetheless, that's a benefit. And the other part of your insurance as it relates to your real estate investing business is protection. Think about the liability coverage that you, your LLC, or any other additional insured, and we may touch on that, I'm sure, later on in the conversation, but you're picking up, in that case, protection. So if you kind of simplify how you think about that coverage relative to benefit and protection, as we talked again here in a little bit probably about additional insureds, lost pays, and all that, or probably help clarify some of the issues that we address in the conversation today. Um, to kind of directly answer as much as I can, even though we're going to be very much general in nature on these answers, um, the differences really between vacant coverage, uh, rehab coverage, and uh, even occupied coverage are very much relevant to how the insurance company underwrites and what they charge for the risk. So in other words, an insurance company, when a property is 100%, let's just call it vacant, and that's the definition that you may see with between tenants for more than 30 or more than 60 days, or a property you bought perhaps at a sheriff's sale or a tax sale um, that doesn't have a tenant in it yet, you've yet to start the rehab or the renovation process, that, with most carriers' definition, is considered to be vacant. The liability exposure on a vacant property, frankly, is a little bit less, believe it or not, because you've got nobody there to slip and fall. Nobody there to have that liability claim in most cases. But the property exposure, at least as it pertains to the insurance company's perspective, is likely a little bit more because even though there's nobody there to slip and fall, there's also nobody there to protect it in the event that a lightning strike occurs or hail damage or tree falls in it, those type of things. I'm not justifying the insurance company's perspective. I'm just giving the air perspective right or wrong relative to how they look at the different types of risk. So if a vacant property, may, they may likely and usually do charge you more premium relevant to the property side. Remember that benefit that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. They're typically going to charge you a higher premium for that than if the property is occupied. By the same token, believe it or not, on a rehab, let's just say, for instance, they may charge you a little bit less than a vacant because there's somebody there to protect the property, at least during the day when they're doing the work. So really the difference between... The types of coverage, assuming that your insurance provider is knowledgeable and they understand and accepted the risk in those different phases, if you want to call them, of occupancy or, or rehab, is really just what the premium that they charge for the benefit and the protection that I just described. But aren't there also some... I, I know when I've bought houses to rehab, I had to get a special policy from one company because my standard company didn't offer uh, coverage on, on houses under construction. Yeah, and, I, and I'm always, again, never one to bash the peers in the industry, but they call them the, you know, while we talk about Lowe's and Home Depot as the box-type stores. Uh-huh. Um, you know, your standard carriers, your state farms of the world, your all states of the world, they typically are not set up, nor do they engage in true vacant or rehab insurance. They're very much in the box. Okay. Not that what they do in the box is wrong, it's just that if you get an agent that's with one of those standard carriers, and for lack of a better explanation, they hem and haw relative to your description of a vacant or a rehab property and how, how they want to insure it, I would hesitate, and I would actually read the contract very, very strictly 
as it relates to that because those type carriers, again, right, wrong, or indifferent, they typically do not offer vacant or rehab coverage. You have to go to a specialty type company. Okay. Now they're out there. I joke when I speak to investor groups across the country that if you can buy vacant, or, I'm sorry, you can buy UFO abduction insurance, health insurance for your dog. You can even buy um, uh, divorce insurance. If you can buy those things, you can buy vacant or rehab property insurance. You just need to make sure that that's actually what you're getting. Okay. All right. Well, we've got a break coming up here. Before I go to break, let me just tell people if you're uh, like to call in with questions, we'd love to have your calls. Please call us uh, locally in the Cincinnati area at 513-772-9658 or outside the area, call one 877 772-9658. We'll be right back with Tim in a couple minutes. Hi, and welcome back. This is Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am Jim Shapiro here with Tim Norris. We usually take uh, emailed questions at the askbina.com website. However, I am not sure they're going to be forwarded to me today, so please do call us if you have questions. We did get a couple of emails earlier in the day, and we're hopefully we'll get to them in a few minutes. Okay, Tim, welcome back. Uh, let's talk about the difference between insuring a house and insuring our real estate business. What, is, what does that mean? What are those differences? What should investors be looking for between, and how does that relate to issues of them having entities, you know, the property is held by an LLC. What do they insure? Are they insuring the business, the house, all of the above? Yeah, before before we even talk about how much liability coverage, what type of protection, who, and um, who you really need to garner the coverage through, like what company, my best advice has always been is to consider your, the basis of your asset protection strategy, because that's really what insurance is a part of, not the foundation of is to really talk to your advisors, your attorney, um, the accountant, the CPA, and just make sure that you build a castle walls and moat around your personal assets, thinking of the insurance more as the somewhat of a corny analogy of the archer in the watchtower. So when you say um, insuring a property versus insuring your business, typically liability, which most people think of as the partially, at least a good part or proportionate share of your asset protection strategy, what liability really covers is two things. It covers property damage. A quick example of that would be, let's say, a, um, in, in the winter, a roof caved in and the tenants closed and their personal property were damaged. And let's let's say that that's just a liability claim that did damage to their property. Whether or not you were liable or at fault as a landlord is another issue. The point is, liability is that, that property damage garnered through your liability coverage is one part. The other part is bodily injury. And that's what most people think of, the slips and falls, those types of things. Well, really, um, what you're doing with your insurance relative to those properties is you're covering your liability exposure, those two things that I just mentioned, and, of course, the property, back to that benefit protection thing that I talked about a few minutes ago. When it comes to insuring your business, typically, unless you have an, an actual office or a space for your business where you may have foot traffic, tenants coming in to pay rent, those types of things, we have very minimal or, or sometimes no exposure to liability claims in our business itself because typically the properties that we own as real estate investors, we can pick up, quote-unquote, the protection for our business entities through the liability insurance on the properties themselves. So unless you're a, a big operator 
with an office, with people on staff where you need to pick up coverage for things like uh, your business vehicles, workers' compensation, those types of things. Those part-time investors that may have your office in your basement with little to no foot traffic ever, most of the time we pick up coverage for that bodily injury and the property damage through the actual coverage that we have on the properties themselves. Now, of course, you and I both know quite a few bigger operators that do have those exposures where they pick up coverage for their business itself, XYZ properties. They have a few trucks. They have a couple people on staff that actually do um, rehab work or do repair work or maintenance work. They have to pick up workers' comp coverage. But more often than not, most people that do this, quote-unquote, on the side that don't have that full-time staff, we pick up that coverage for the, quote-unquote, business via additional insured endorsements on the policies for the properties themselves. Hmm. Okay. Yet I often hear people talk about getting an umbrella coverage for their business. Uh, million, two million, three million dollar coverage. Here, and I'm, you know me, you know me long enough by now. I'm a smart aleck at heart, and people ask all the time, "Well, how much liability coverage is enough?" And you know, when relevant to auto insurance, for instance, I always answer, "Well, you tell me who you're going to hit with the car, and I'll tell you how much is enough." Well, <laughs> it, it, it kind of goes back to that brief description relative to the castle walls and the moat. All the liability coverage in the world does you no good. If that which is attacking you or your business entity isn't covered anyway, I'll give you a quick, somewhat of a not a good example, but good relevant to the conversation. We had a property, a client that owned their own properties. They had a few people on staff. They weren't our client at the time, but they sent one of their um, people out to collect a rent check. Well, the tenant, who apparently whether this occurred or not is really irrelevant, but the point is the tenant accused that employee of sexually accosting her when they went out to collect the rent check. So I remember a few minutes ago I mentioned that liability covers two things, bodily injury and property damage. Well, that sexual costing was neither of those two things. So in this case, our client, again, not our client at the time, they could have had $100 million of liability coverage, and that which was exposed was nothing that liability coverage protected against anyway. So my point is, again, foundationally, the work you do with the John Hires of the world and the attorneys and the legal advisors and the CTAs and those team of professional advisors that you engage, that is much more important because the LLCs that you create that you just alluded to, the trust and whatever makes the most sense for your business model personally and professionally, that's really the foundation. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Okay. Now, is there a difference in, in how you'd insure things if it's held in an LLC versus a land trust versus your personal name? How we would do it, there really is no difference. And not to, I'm not going to pitch here by any stretch, but the program that we have is very unique relative to our ability to name whoever or whatever that relative to an entity needs to be named on that policy. Again, back to the benefit relative to the property coverage, the property itself, or the, um, the protection on the liability side. The challenge most folks run into when they're dealing with the box companies, the, you know, the standard, the, the larger companies that most people have heard of, is if you start to get a little savvy, as I would consider, you take things out of your personal names and you start to make moves relative to your business model by creating LLCs and trusts and all that, a lot of these box companies, or for that matter, their representatives, don't understand what we're trying to accomplish as it relates to um, you know, tax ramifications, estate planning, planning issues, those types of things. And a lot of companies will say, oh, well, gosh, well, we can't do that. Or, yeah, we can do it, but we have to go to a commercial-type policy. Well, 
speaking as a real estate investor, I want to segregate my personal assets from my business assets. The properties that we own, manage, or control, I want to keep those as far away from my personal assets and my personal insurance as I can. So anything that I do, I want to make sure that I'm naming the appropriate entities, but by the same token, I don't want to drag my personal insurance back into it. A lot of companies or agents will speak out and say, well, let's just garner you a dwelling policy for the first rental property that you're buying, and we'll extend or we'll tie in your homeowner's liability, that is your personal liability, to cover your exposure there. Well, the work that you do with your advisors that I mentioned could be undone somewhat by the fact that you're tying in two personal policies into what I would consider to be a business exposure. So again, if you think about that castle walls in the moat as kind of a perspective change relative to how you think about insurance, and then use that insurance as the tool to pick off as many exposures as you can, knowing that the LLCs and the uh, trusts and the things that you may create that are relevant to other parts of your business model are just as important as just buying as much liability insurance as you can. You've mentioned umbrellas. Umbrellas are by no stretch a panacea. Typically, an umbrella, um, which is, is really referred to as an umbrella mistakenly in a lot of cases, they're, they're usually what are called excess policies. But an umbrella in general, whether it be a personal umbrella or a commercial umbrella, is really a more cost-effective way to garner additional liability coverage over and above more than one type of liability exposure. So think of a personal umbrella or a personal situation where my wife and I own a couple cars and a house, and let's say we owned a boat. Those are three types of liability exposures. The homeowners are the personal liability, of course, the auto liability, and the boat owner's liability. If I had a half a million dollars of coverage in each of those types of policies or types of um, exposures, it would be a lot more cost-effective for me to buy a million dollars of coverage in an umbrella over and above those three types than it would be to simply increase the underlying coverage to a million in each one of those policies. So in that case, an umbrella is an appropriate term. However, let's say I own 15 rental properties, and per occurrence, I have a million dollars of coverage for any one occurrence in any of those properties, and I have what's called a $2 million aggregate. Even though that aggregate, or there's 15 different properties, typically if it's one policy, as you, count, as you refer to, a lot of people do um, think of a master or a scheduled policy as an umbrella. An umbrella, again, is a liability issue. But before I get too far off track, that million dollars per occurrence, two million aggregate, which means per policy year, what people commonly refer to as an umbrella over and above that is really an excess policy. doesn't mean that it's picking up additional coverages for things that may not be covered by those property policies or policy if it's one master policy. It just gives you a million over and above. And again, unless I um, have a discomfort level with a million dollars, I'm honestly not that um, aggressive in convincing people to go to that extra million. What may be more appropriate, even though that risk is spread out in my example in 15 different properties, may be more appropriate to take that aggregate limit, that's $2 million in most cases, and make it apply per location for sometimes minimal premium. That Therefore, you'd, in a sense, have a million per occurrence, $2 million per policy year, but on each and every one of those properties. To me, that's probably a lot more cost-effective way. That, coupled with the fact, to be quite frank, 99% of liability claims are settled well under a million dollars. Litigators don't litigate, and that's no slam on the attorneys that may be listening in. Litigators typically settle. And in the event that a property, um, the liability claim occurs at one of your properties, even if it's a fire, 
that million dollars, 99 times out of 100, is more than sufficient. To me, coupling that with good strategization with those aforementioned professional advisors, man, I don't know. You can buy insurance for anything if you want to pay enough premium for it. I'm just, I'm really comfortable at a million dollars. I'm not saying it's enough. I'm just saying I'm more than comfortable on my properties at a million dollars. Okay. All right, well, we're up for another break in a moment, Tim. We'll come back. We're go- I did get those emails with those other questions. There were some pretty involved ones. We'll leave a few minutes to go through that one first. Uh, before we break, let me remind everyone we're, uh, we're supported by the Real Estate Investor Association of Greater Cincinnati. We meet the first and third Thursday of every month. Uh, we welcome new visitors to come check out our, our organization. We've been doing this for 35 years. Uh, this meeting, uh, we've got two topics uh, coming up on August 16th. One is an interesting one. Will your leases hold up? Uh, come here, an attorney talk about what it is that make what, that does work and doesn't work, and you can use in a lease. I had a tenant call me today after the moving out of her last rental and saying, the landlord's charging me to repaint the house and clean the carpets. And in Ohio, that's not allowable. So that was an interesting question. Uh, the landlord probably doesn't realize that she can't charge for routine maintenance kind of things like that, normal wear and tear. Second speaker of the night at 7.30 is an attorney talking about uh, making good money in, in probate and estate deals. So the opportunity is there. So uh, come to our meetings. Uh, the website is CincinnatiRIA.com. We meet at the Community Action Agency in Roselawn, Bond Hill area, near Seymour and Redding. Uh, Six o'clock, uh, our first meeting starts. Uh, so come check us out. Uh, We'll be back in a few minutes. Hi, this is Jim Shapiro. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. To get today, I'm here with Tim Norris uh, talking about insurance. Tim, we got a great question from Angel out in, uh, she and her husband Wayne are, are investors out in Washington State. They've got some single families and a triplex, and they're starting to look at other states. They hold their properties in LLCs, and they're currently moving, as they put it, piles of personal line landlord protection policies to a commercial master policy. They also have a personal umbrella, which they realize does not protect the LLC, and they're looking at adding a commercial umbrella. Their questions kind of go to some of those topics, a little more sophisticated questions. Uh, What is the insurance industry observing in personal and commercial policies regarding the members of the LLC getting sued along with the LLC. Should the individuals be named in a policy? And if the individuals are named, does that make them, you know, if you insure your company, ABC Rentals, and it gets sued, but you're not listed on it, is that better than you having your name on it together with ABC Rentals? So when the attorney goes to file a lawsuit, they don't also sue the individuals who are named on the policy. Yeah, that's a, that's. I think that's a tough question. It's a good question. I hear it quite a bit more often than you think, especially as um, investors, for lack of a better term, kind of graduate into more professional and they start to think about these things more consistently. And again, the advice I'm about to give you is, is really more opinion than it is, a, obviously, legal advice, because by no stretch am I an attorney. However, and I've mentioned a couple times now, the policies that you garner, that you engage in, are providing two things, benefit for the property itself and protection. Well, my attitude is, if I've got an LLC 
I buy the insurance in the name of the LLC. That's who's garnering the protection and the benefit because if a property claim occurs, you want the LLC paid. That's the whole, that's the reason you do it. You want that or that entity which owns the property to be the primary beneficiary of the insurance, especially relevant to the property. When it comes to protection, that is the liability side, I'm of the opinion that I name the LLC and I name the members of the LLC. And I'll tell you why that is. My attitude is, if the LLC is somehow attacked and somehow, for lack of a better term, penetrated and it doesn't do what it was intended to do, and it's pierced, and you as the member or the other members are also sued in the event of a liability claim, I want my name on that policy as an additional insurance. Again, that's more opinion than it is anything based upon legal um, precedent or anything like that. So I really don't have any good relevant answers as they pertain specifically to how the insurance industry looks at it. But again, whether my name's on there or not, the reason that I engage in that protection on the liability is not so much to hide me as the, a member of the LLC, it's to do other things. It's to create, call it what it is, more obstacles for the legal world, the attorney to get at in the event that that exposure, in this case the property itself, creates issues for me. So I'm, I'm always going to name the members, If again, if they would like, my advice is to name you as the member on that policy as an additional insured. When the event a liability claim occurs, whoever gets sued, the policy is providing the protection. It's not all of a sudden the attorney that's doing the suing gets a copy of that policy. The policy is what responds. The insurance company on that policy actually handles the claim from that point forward. If, in fact, you as an individual member of the LLC get sued, again, for the third time, having you named on that policy as a beneficiary relevant to the protection that liability coverage provides, I think that's a good idea. All right. That makes good sense. Uh, Let's see. uh, This question went on. Let me see if there's another question in here for just comments. Uh, she did say that typically uh, courts would only go past the policy protecting the LLC and, and go after the individuals if it was a particularly egregious claim, uh, that the courts typically would not easily ignore the limited liability company and, and bypass it unless it really was a case where the uh, individuals involved, you know, they felt deserved it. Is that your experience also? Yeah, that's a tough one, and I would think it'd be relative to jurisdictional issues and, you know, where in the country it is and how okay. the courts look at it. That's a, lot, that's a tough one. Um, again, if you do the right things relative to making sure, again, we're assuming an LLC is the uh, typically the entity of choice, but making sure your LLC, you follow the guidelines, you, you have your meetings, you do your bylaws, and you try to do everything correctly, Learning the protection under the liability insurance for the LLC itself or the entity itself, whatever the case may be, and you as an individual or the members as individuals, to me, it kind of is what it is. I I don't have any personal experience relevant to that. And I've heard both sides of it. I've heard um, attorneys say, hey, it doesn't matter how well you've locked down your entity selection, how well you've done all the paperwork. At the end of the day, it's all up to the the judge and the 12 jurors. And even if you've done nothing wrong, if they know you've got coverage, they've seen a lot of claims um, or, or a lot of court cases just flat out being the judge saying, hey, you've got the protection, insurance company A, you pay this much, you pay that much, and then they just move on. So to a certain extent, it's very, very specific to the individual situation. 
I wish I could give you some statistics relevant to that type of question, but I just can't. Okay. I think you just hit on a point that I want to come back to real quick. Uh, and all of these topics, whether we're talking about uh, insurance or uh, limited liability companies or whatever sort of asset protections, the most important thing I think we can do, tell me if you agree, Tim, is make sure we're doing our stuff right. You know, it's, if we are breaking the law, if we are being negligent in our actions, then all of the protection in the world is is likely to still leave us exposed. And if we are operating properly, following the housing law, following fair housing rules, following building code rules, doing our business properly, isn't that also one of the most important things we can do? Aside, you know, protection of insurance and limited liability companies. It all falls apart if you're not doing your things properly and you don't know the laws in your jurisdiction and you're not following them. Would you agree? I completely agree. I think what's the old adage? If it were easy, everybody would do it. Right. Um, It's just not that simple to do the right thing, and that's why I think the more professional investors that you and I know so well do well because they take the time to make sure everything is done as well as it can be. And it's the old prudent man rule, if you want to call it, um, you just do what you can do and then, you know, hope and pray that, you know, good things happen. You know, that you bring up a good point, very relevant to the insurance, though, is always know that the application that you sign or the agreement, the participation agreement, depending on the type of insurance that you have, that you sign becomes a part of the insurance contract. I'll give you a kind of a, a couple of horror stories. We had an issue one time where uh, this is relevant to the vacant property that you talked about a few minutes ago, Jim. Um, or an agent had told a prospect of ours who was calling us to try to get it done the right way on a vacant property. They knew it was vacant. They knew it was going to be vacant for quite a while, at least 60, 90 days. And the agent honestly told them that they should put some furniture in the front room and put um, those timers on the lights just to make it look like it was occupied so he could get it through his underwriting department. I'll tell you what, insurance companies are in the business not to pay claims, especially claims that are based upon fraud, they're in the business to make money. If they can figure out a way to get off of that claim, they sure as heck are going to. And if it's a company that doesn't write vacant insurance, don't try to make what you've got into an occupied property policy. It just doesn't make sense. And one more quick point where the uh, contract, and especially the fraud laws exist in a lot of the states relevant to insurance policies and insurance applications. It's about not very, it's, a, it's a, actually a real estate investor client of ours, but he also owns a body shop, a truck service of all things. You know, the long haul truckers that may come around a large city. They need service work on the way through town. Well, in that industry, and I'll try to keep this saga very short, it's as short as possible, but it's somewhat relevant to how important it is to understand what it is you're signing and what it is you're engaging in when you buy insurance. Well, it had their, had their business insurance on that truck service for many, many years. And I'm just going to use numbers just to make the math easy. Let's say we, they were getting charged $30,000 a year in premium. And every few years, even though he's a friend of mine, he would shop the marketplace. He came back to me and said, my God, this guy's going to do it for $17,000. And I said, Joe, that is awesome. I'll tell you what. He said, I'll send you the quote over. I said, I want to see the quote. Send me over the application that they want you to sign. So I don't know if you know much about that truck service industry, but the guys that do the work, the mechanics, are very. they tend to um, live paycheck to paycheck, and they're good, hardworking guys. But three of his seven drivers had DUIs on their record. And lo and behold, when Joe, when Joe sent over the application for that policy that was $13,000 cheaper than what he was paying, 
the three drivers missing from the drivers list list happen to be coincidentally the three drivers without the DUIs on the record or with the DUIs on the record. And I told him, I said, go to the last page, read the Ohio fraud statement. And basically, if you if he would have signed that application, engaged in that insurance, and one of those guys, he, he could have went years and nothing would have happened, and nobody would have known better. But if one of those guys that wasn't on that application got in an accident, not only could the insurance company have denied the claim, he could have been guilty of fraud. So my point to the listeners is, even though it's not the most enlightening or engaging material in the world, but at least read the applications, and at least get through those policies to a point not so much of expertise but of cognizance and ask questions and get those questions answered, believe it or not, not just in a phone call or in a face-to-face meeting, engage in emails back and forth because that creates a quote-unquote paper trail. Of course, it's not paper, but it gives you something to at least go back on in the event that you do have a claim that you felt 100% was explained to you should have been covered or should have been covered a certain way. It gives you a lot of, of what it is ammunition when you're battling that insurance company. All right. Those are good comments. I think we are coming up on our next break here. So uh, if we haven't had any callers come in today. We're, uh, we've got time for some calls before we break. Uh, the, the last uh, uh, section, please call us at 513-772-9658 or out of the local area, 877-772-9658. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. I am Jim Shapiro here today with Tim Norris. Tim, I got some great questions from Van in North Carolina. Let me, uh, we got three from, from our friends in North Carolina. Uh, first one is an interesting one. Is it true that if you call your agent or you call your company about a possible claim, even if you don't file it, that that will go into your file and could get recorded as either a rejected claim or an unpaid claim and then be held against you in the future as, uh, as though you'd filed claims against your policy? I'll give you your typical cop-out answer from an insurance agent. How about maybe? Maybe. <laughs> it depends. Um, what I think Dan's referencing is what's commonly known, if maybe not, maybe uncommonly known, is a, called a CLUE report. And CLUE is an acronym for Comprehensive Loss Underwriting Exchange. It's basically the insurance industry sharing information. So when you say going against your record, what that means is the next time you may want to shop your insurance coverages, if that carrier with whom you're shopping for new coverage or replacement coverage engages in the clue process, if you, in fact, have called a company even to file what's considered to be a record-only claim on a property, it could, in fact, show up on that clue report. Now, whether or not that has a detrimental effect on, any, on your ability to engage further with a new or replacement insurance company is really up to the company in the situation. My attitude is, however... If you have a question on whether or not something is covered or to what extent it would be covered or what you need to do and you are concerned about things like that, is to call the agent or email the agent and specifically say, hey, I do not want to file a claim with the carrier, but I do have a question relative to the storm damage from last week or whatever it is. And that way you know if they do put it in after the fact, then in and of itself you probably got to beef with the agent. Now, before I go too much further, the one thing – that we're going to touch, and we may not have time to touch on tonight, Jim, is trying to um, self-insure or to self-settle liability. So if you call an agent up and say, hey, this is Johnson slipped down the walk, 
I think she's okay. She says she's going to get checked out, but she's covered by Medicare, whatever the case may be. I just wanted to let you know. In a sense, he may have a contractual obligation to put the insurance company on notice. So if you do something like that relative to liability, remember the protection side of things that I've referenced a couple times? Mm -hmm. You do something like that, you may expect it to show up on such a CLUE report. Now, CLUE, that acronym or that process is very much specific to the personal line side of things. If you have a commercial master policy, as somebody else alluded to, I think, um, earlier in one of the emails, um, CLUE isn't the process. It's usually called a loss run. And a loss run is a insurance company sharing information with the requester relative to claims history on a commercial-type policy. But again, that was a long answer to a short question. And again, I'm going to stick to my maybe. Um, but again, if liability, never try to self-insure or self-settle those incidences, because even if it does show up on a report, it's better to have that than the alternative. And the alternative would be this. Let's use our Mrs. Johnson example. She slips and falls. Instead of calling the agent or the company, you decide to tell her, Mrs. Johnson, you've been a great tenant for years. You always pay your rent on time. I'll tell you what, just send me any deductible, any copay um, that you may have from your doctor's visits, and I'll take care of those for you. Well, if that happens, then a few weeks later, she sends you those. But then a few weeks after that, she's still going back to the hospital, and she's got now an attorney. Then you decide to turn it over to your insurance company. Contractually, in most cases, you had an obligation to notify them very quickly, very soon after that incident was made known to you. They could realistically deny the claim and wash their hands of it because you did not notify them as soon as possible. So, again, even though I think you were leading into, maybe I did it for you on one of the questions I think Van has, was relative to self-insurance. Believe it or not, I'm an insurance guy, and I make a living, quote-unquote, selling and advising on insurance. So my attitude always is is to self-insure as much as you possibly can. Because insurance companies own banks for reasons. They're in the business to make money. You can keep as much of that money in your pocket and out of theirs, then all the better for you. So deductibles, higher deductibles, um, is always a good idea. My rule of thumb has been for many years, take the minimum claim that you would ever file and double it. So if you're never going to file a $2,000 claim for roof damage or uh, hail damage and a windstorm, those types of things, um, then don't carry a $1,000 deductible. Carry at least a $5,000 deductible. Because if you take the savings that you generate statistically over a period of time, you're usually a lot better off by carrying higher deductibles, knowing that you're typically only insured against catastrophes. A $5,000 deductible versus a $1,000 deductible when you're staring at $80,000 fire in the face is minimal. really doesn't make a difference. You'll be able to mitigate that very efficiently in your work that you do with your rehabbers with the reconstruction post, even with the insurance company and that matter. But when it comes to liability, never try to self-insure those because you just don't know. Even if you buy a house at a share sale for $5,000, you know it's going to sit empty for a few months, you know you've got a minimal risk at that point. You've got $5,000 at risk, let's say. But never try to self-insure the liability because if a couple kids sneak in there on a weekend night, decide to get drinking, and somebody gets hurt on that vacant property of yours, that's an unknown risk. Believe it or not, there are carriers, and we are one of them with our program. We can engage in liability only in those situations. Again, self-insure as much as you can, but just never try to self-insure that liability. You just don't know what you're looking at. Great. All right, we've got a couple more topics. We've got about five minutes left. Now, this should be a relatively quick one for you. Uh, this is a third question from Van, because it was Van that also had that self-insurance question you just answered. 
what do you use as the minimal amount uh, that you would want to ever turn over to an insurance company? You know, if you have a thousand dollar deductible, what would be the the smallest amount you'd want to go ahead and and turn in a claim for? And I guess the associated question is, uh, what you know? Let me rephrase. Well, go ahead. Let me ask you that one. What would you say is the the smallest amount you'd want to report to an insurance company? Well, you know, it gets back to the uh, property claim because that's really the only thing that's relevant. I just described it as a liability exposure. You pretty much need to report any incident that occurs. Um, on the property side, I, I for one, am not going to ever carry a thousand dollar deductible. You know, in my business model, and that's that's kind of my evasive answer is it's very much relative to what your appetite for risk is. Now, there are points of diminishing return, and for no other reason than just for example's sake, let's just use car insurance, for instance. On a new car that I bought last year, a nice truck that I'd wanted, I bought it, to go from a $500 or $1,000 collision deductible saved me about $150 a year. To me, I saved that because my attitude is I'm not going to file a claim under $1,000 anyway. However, to go from a $1,000 deductible up to a $2,500 deductible, it only saved me about another $40 a year. So to me, that was a point of diminishing return with $1,000 okay. made in your sink. However, in properties, you'll start to see, especially when you start to get into multiple ownership or ownership of multiple properties, where the higher the deductible, of course, the lower your premium. So going, these are general rules of thumb. To go from a 1000 to a $2,500 deductible, you're looking at probably a 10% or so savings on the property. To go from a thousand to a five thousand, you're looking anywhere from fifteen to seventeen percent. To go from five to ten, maybe twenty, twenty-two, sometimes twenty-five percent, depending on the carrier. Now, at the end of the day, if I've got two properties, that twenty-five percent savings over a thousand-dollar deductible to a ten-thousand-dollar deductible doesn't equate to a lot of hard dollars. So I'm probably going to stay in the twenty-five hundred, maybe the five thousand range if I've got two properties. However, if I've got twenty properties. That percentage difference generates a lot, lot more hardcore dollar savings to go from a twenty-five hundred or a five or a five to a ten. So again, you just need to gather the information, see what effect it really has in the savings, knowing that over a period of time, a year, year and a half, maybe two years, that if the premium savings allows you to cover that difference in the higher deductible versus the lower deductible that you may have had prior, then it's probably a good move. And again, okay. too. If you think about the things that we do as real estate investors, we don't typically pay retail for rehab work. We don't typically pay retail for materials. Knowing, though, that the insurance industry settles at retail prices for those things, more often than not, the people that have gone through what I would consider to be larger claims, let's say over $10,000, more often than not, even with the deductible considered, in a lot of cases, you get more than, more than you need to, to take care of the damage to the property. That's what the insurance is all about, is to indemnify you, to put you back the way you were before the loss. So to carry lower deductibles, believe it or not, that's more beneficial to the insurance company because they charge higher rates for those lower deductibles. Let but me yeah, ask you a different question, Tim. we got about a minute left. Sure. When I call up my agent and I file a claim, someone, uh, let's say there was a tree damage, it was $10,000. What does that do to my policy? How much am I going to see my insurance go up on the other 10 properties I have if I file a claim on that one? And again, another, my third cop-out answer of the afternoon. I just don't know. It's going to be very relevant to the carrier and how their underwriting and renewal guidelines are set up. Some carriers may have a very specific. If you have one claim 
over $5,000 within the annual period, then your next renewal is going to be a 12% increase. A lot of carriers don't work that specifically in our world, especially for multiple property policies on non-owner-occupied investments. Um, you, you just don't know. And, and a lot of them, you, you have a catastrophe like when Ike flew through, even all the way through Ohio back about, what, three, four years ago now? Uh-huh. The insurance industry calls those catastrophes. They tax code them. So it's not that they give you freebies. In, in, in a sense, we may all end up, and likely we do, all end up paying higher rates when insurance companies have those types of catastrophes. But they kind of give you a free pass relative to any specific action they may take on your policy because there's, you have no control over the weather like that. So depending on what caused that tree to blow over and do the damage, you may not see a rate increase at all. Well, you may see one two years later because a lot of trees blew over in your area due to that windstorm that occurred that two-year prior period. But in and of itself, it's just, it's just too tough to tell. Um, again, that's one um, argument, honestly, for a higher deductible, too. If you're worried about the premium impact that a smaller claim has, self-insure those things. Take the savings that those higher deductibles generate and, in a sense, create your own self-insurance fund, your own deductible fund. All right. I think uh, we're about to wrap up here, Tim. Thank you so much. This has been great today. Everyone, uh, please uh, tune in again next Wednesday. Vina will be back for Real Life Real Estate Investing. Look for Cincinnati RIA on the web at CincinnatiRIA.com and come to our meeting on the 16th. Thank you all and have a great, great week. <music>